This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Peoples and Things, where we explore human life with technology. I'm Lee Vinsel. As you may know, I've been working on a book tentatively titled A Good History of Shit Jobs. It examines changes in numbers, types, and qualities of jobs in the United States from the 1970s to the present as a way of answering the question, why is it that, as United Way's ALICE program routinely points out, about 40% of American households can barely afford to make ends meet? One of the first historical test pits I've dug for this book project is to examine something called the new economy, which was a phrase frequently used during the Clinton administration. The phrase described a quickly expanding economy that many figures attributed to new information and communications technologies, like personal computers and the internet. Boosters of the new economy idea believe that it would give rise to a new period of abundance and prosperity, perhaps even greater than the post-World War II boom. And the only question was how to get poor people and those historically marginalized in corporate white-collar settings, including women and black and Latino people, the skills they needed to succeed in the new economy so that the great new bounty would be equally distributed. In retrospect, talk of the new economy, was bubble thinking. It involved perceiving a temporary spurt of growth, yes, perhaps in part driven by new technologies, and assuming that the expansion would be long-lived and persistent. It was not. If you examine use of the phrase, the new economy, in Google's Ngram tool, which tracks use of words and exact phrases over time, you will see that the phrase falls off a cliff face in 2002, which was the height of the dot-com bust that began in 2000. This also suggests that chatter about the new economy was tied to the dot-com-centered stock market mania of the 1990s. It was irrational exuberance. What has also stood out to me as I've looked into this history is just how much the new economy of the 1990s makes the tech bubble of the past decade, all of the excitement around the sharing economy, self-driving cars, drones, the metaverse, and Web3, multiple rounds of AI chatter, the list goes on, it makes it all feel like deja vu. The difference is that at least the new economy was a growth spurt that delivered economically, whereas the tech bubble of the past decade mostly has not. As I began reading into the history of the new economy, my favorite piece of writing I have found is economic journalist and broadcaster Doug Henwood's After the New Economy. Published in 2003, the book is a kind of autopsy of a recently deceased economic beast, and the book is a rant and a romp full of schadenfreude and insightful, mean jokes. Henwood is an interesting guy. Today, he is host of the audio program Behind the News, which is broadcast on KPFA and is also available as a podcast. For nearly 30 years, he was the author and publisher of The Left Business Observer, a newsletter that gave Marx-inflected analyses of Wall Street, financial markets, and business news. In this way, Henwood has, for decades, been one of the most reliable and long-lived leftist analysts of the economy. And after the new economy, his book was one product of that work. And it's a great one. 
I had a lot of fun chatting with Doug, whose work I have been following since I was a young grad student. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hey, get excited! Doug, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Oh, uh, good to be here. I've been looking forward to this. I think we uh, we share a similar perspective on this craziness of the new economy. <laughs> which just that's right. I think that's right. <laughs> endlessly renewing, self-renewing. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I started writing about the, you know, so-called new economy a couple of years ago. And your book, After the New Economy, which I'd already read in grad school at some point in like 2005 or six or something like that kind of increasingly became important to me. And I know it's always funny looking back at something you wrote, you know, so many years ago. Um, but, you know, when you look back now, like, how do you understand the book? And, and what, in retrospect, do you think you were trying to do with it at the time? Uh, well, you know, I, I, I started thinking about this stuff in the late 90s when uh, the, uh, the first, you know, the dot-com bubble and the first new economy mania was really in full-fledged, uh, full riot. Uh, and I kept looking at this, this is all insane. <laughs> uh, I remember um, uh, at one point, uh, The Nation magazine had a deal with something called Pseudo.com. Huh. Uh, Pseudo was this very short-lived uh, media uh, uh, conglomerate uh, that got more space at the 2000 uh, Democratic Convention than some um, established news organizations. So it was wow. a, ph a phenomenon. So The Nation had this deal, so Nation writers would go talk to them and be on their videos, and who knows, knows how many people watched them. But I walked over to this. There's this nice building in Soho, the Puck Building, uh, kind of a famous building in, in Soho. I walked over there and walked in, and it was just an enormous operation with all this equipment and scores of young people running around um, looking mm -hmm. busy and important. And I thought, what is going on here? This can't last. And I, it, it didn't last. It was dead about a year <laughs> later. Uh, and then the, uh, the, uh, the founder of it, whose name I can't remember, um, uh, ended up uh, um, doing a, a webcam of himself as a barista. Um, he just couldn't give up the limelight. Uh, but then wow. he disappeared. I don't know what ever happened to this guy. But I think pseudo.com, you know, it's like, okay, you're making a joke. You know, everything in the 90s was all about the irony. Um, yeah. And uh, it was very much in that spirit. But you know, I think, uh, how does this go on? I remember walking up and down the streets of the Lower East Side, which had, you know, just 10 years earlier been a junkied. Uh, junkie uh, paradise, and all, there are all these new restaurants and young people um, eating expensive meals. Like, where is this money coming from? How is this going to go on? And it didn't. You know, yeah. it started with the '95 uh, Netscape uh, IPO, I think, uh, and lasted until the spring of 2000. Uh, and um, I thought, man, this is not going to end well. I was started working on the book, uh, and then I had uh, my first marriage fell apart, so I never got the time. I, I didn't finish it um, in a timely uh, manner, uh, and so it didn't come out hmm. for a couple of years after it, uh, until after it crashed. But I thought, okay, this is dead. I'm going to kick it when it's down and hope it never stands up again. Yeah, and it didn't for some time. But then it came back, uh, and you saw like the unicorns and the the VC manias. Uh, the free money from the Fed, which fed it all. Uh, yeah. I guess, man, here we are again. And uh, what strikes me, uh, struck me uh, during that period, and now it seems to be over, you know, with interest rates higher, money not yeah. flowing so freely, it seems to be over, at least for now. Um, although there's talk the IPO uh, channel is going to revive. But in any case, um, what struck me is that in many ways it was a repetition. Um, the first time is comedy. The second time is, I don't know what, bathos? Um, there's, um, for as crazy as the late 90s uh, mania was, there was an exuberance to it, a utopianism to it, and a freshness to it that is just yeah. not around this time. Uh, and, you know, people thought at that time that you know, this is going to change the world. It's going to really transform capitalism. It's going to be a different society. And it was, a lot of it was ludicrous, but at least there was some kind of <laughs> utopian impulse there. And now, what? You know, the, the, the achievements of this, this round have been, what, uh, ordering a sandwich and, and, and a cab. Uh, and it just, uh, 
it just doesn't have that same utopian impulse. It's so much less fun. Maybe it's just because I'm older and my attitude towards the world is sour and, you know, uh, more death driven, but, um, it just <laughs> watching it go, watching it happen again. It's been the strangest yeah. sensation. And again, I had the same sensation. This can't last. This is insane. And yeah. everybody, you know, says, Oh, you just don't understand. It's all really new. And it didn't last. But yeah. you know, it may stand up again as it so often does. I know, man. It is a wild thing. Um, so, well, first of all, you know, there are some. There will be some listeners of this this episode who, uh, you know, maybe born were born after two thousand who don't know this term new economy or they just forgotten it or they repressed it for, for people who were alive in the nineties. So, you know, like what was the new economy? And you know, do you remember? Do you remember how you first became aware of it? Was it just everywhere at the time? Well, it kind of was everywhere. And um, actually, Tom Frank uh, gave me a little uh, uh, lesson in the uh, etymology of the term. Uh, it was originally uh, coined by I can't remember what nationality, but it's a socialist, and they're talking mm. about a new, a real new economy, not a post-capitalist economy. Uh, and that was the first appearance of the term um, in in English. Uh, decades earlier, I can't remember exactly when. It's, it's. I wrote about that in the book, but I can't remember mm-hmm. exactly when. But um, uh, it started becoming really prominent you know, around the time of the Netscape uh, IPO, '95. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wired magazine uh, was uh, you know, singing this anthem of uh, novelty. Uh, people like Lou Rosetto, uh, one of the founders of Wired. Uh, who is the guy who wrote New Rules for the New Economy? Kevin Kelly. Yeah, Kevin Kelly. Who <laughs> yeah. uh, I interviewed that guy on my radio show. I don't have the recording of it, but man, that guy was just an asshole, an intolerable, just intolerable person. Yeah. Um, and uh, he was just thought everything was so wonderful, just because you know Marie As- Antoinette did not have aspirin, therefore she wasn't really rich. Um, he, yeah. He'd make stupid arguments like that. Um, but you know, this is, I just you know, read Wired magazine and think, man, this is crazy stuff. Yeah. Uh, and it was all about the new economy, new rules for the new economy. Uh, there was a um, an accountant, Baruch Lev at NYU Business School, <laughs> who was trying to translate some of the principles of the pure exuberance into something like uh, accounting uh, principles. And you know, you think accounting, this is just the opposite. Of crazy dreaming, accounting is all about rationality, and everything has to balance and make sense. And you know, it's mm-hmm. all about hard limits. Uh, and he was, however, trying to uh, make ac- uh, the accounting profession um, new. Uh, and uh, he had these uh, ideas that, for example, it, his profession, accounting, was too hung up in the transaction, and um, he was all about intangible value. Uh, mm. And you didn't actually need to sell something to create value, which you know struck me as this you know this is that's just not capitalism. That's not how it works. If you don't sell something, you may have some imaginary value, but if you can't realize it in the form of money, you got nothing. <laughs> and so I thought this stuff is wild. I think he actually won a, a prize called the Wildman Prize, <laughs> which I thought was funny. Um, but you know, here he was at NYU Business School, you know, a distinguished institution, uh, a professor of accounting, saying things that seemed to me absolutely nonsensical. Yeah. Uh, and um, I interviewed this guy who ran a mutual fund, the net net thing. It was actually wrote this for Wired because I kind of knew some of the people who worked at Wired. Mm-hmm. And um, one of them asked me to do something about this fund. It was called the Net Net Fund. It was just all about. Um, you know, internet-related companies. And I interviewed the portfolio manager. I said, how do you value a company that has no profits? They said, oh, it's great. It's, it's better that way. You don't have to worry about traditional valuation models. So uh, the lack of profit was something he saw as liberating. So I thought, wow. you know, these guys are trying to repeal several centuries of capitalist um, discipline, logic, uh, and it's just not going to last. Um, and it didn't. But it was it was a wild time, and you know it it didn't come back with the same I don't know kind of philosophical uh, framework um, that it had in the late nineties. Um, but the idea was that technology, the internet, and specific, specifically, but tele- ICT, you know, right. uh, computing and uh, communications technology, information processing stuff. Uh, was going to transform the way we live, transform everything about society. It was going to end the business cycle. It was going to flatten hierarchies. It was going to make work fun. 
Um, yeah. It's going to be a disalienating thing. Everybody's going to be happy. Uh, and technology and the kind of social organization that it enabled was going to bring joy to us all. And um, that's, I just thought, man, that's just not the way it works. Uh, and uh, you know, when there's a, um, a party going on, you, you don't want to be the one on the sidelines uh, <laughs> yeah. naysaying. It's not a pleasant yeah. role, but there I was, you know, on the, on the sidelines naysaying. Uh, yeah. I, I, you know, I just, it was, it was, it was a wild time. And New York, you know, Lower Manhattan was one of the centers of it. It wasn't quite like mm. the Bay Area, but there's a lot going on in Lower Manhattan, Silicon, mm. Silicon Alley. So I saw this stuff going on. I see these people. Um, I'd see these billboards. Um, they had this giant "Welcome to Silicon Alley" thing just over the Flatiron Building. Oh wow! Uh, that didn't last <laughs> either. <Yeah. laughs> but I don't think anybody re remembers the term Silicon Alley except oldsters like me. Yeah, it might have come back in the 2010s. I'm not sure. So one of the things I like to do in this uh, podcast is kind of give uh, listeners a sense of folks' like you know career trajectories and you know who who they are, how the, how they became who they are. So I first, I first became aware of your work through your old newsletter, The Left Business Observer, which I, I gather you founded in like 1986. Yeah, it, 1986 to 2013. And so how did you how did you become to the, the guy who what, what was The Left Business Observer and how did you become the guy who made it? Well, there's a, a there's something of a story to it. I uh I originally was uh an English major in college. I did 3 years of graduate English at the University of Virginia. Uh and uh I decided I really didn't want to pursue an academic career, so I did my orals and then left ABD. Maybe I start maybe I'll write a dissertation, maybe I won't. But you know, and then I I was tired of living in Charlottesville. It was kind of dull, and I wanted to move to New York. So I moved to New York. Uh got a job in publishing. Uh medical publishing. Uh, and, you know, I was hoping to be some sort of glamorous editor or something someday. But, uh, I, you know, I ended up in medical and technical publishing. Well, it wasn't bad. Uh, it was a pretty good job. It was a nice place to start. And um, then uh, I quit that job to write my dissertation. I was going to write my dissertation. Uh, and I did some typesetting. Uh, I learned how to do, operate an early computerized typesetting uh, machine. I um, uh, then my then wife and I, uh, got into book indexing. We did books indexes for the uh, publisher that we both used to work for. Uh, and it gave me a lot of free time. It was very flexible, uh, and it made a decent amount of money. So I thought, you know, I was reading a lot of, um, the business press. Uh, when I was going to, going, when I was going to do my dissertation, I was going to write about American poetry, evolution of narcissism in American poetry. It's going to be pretty psychoanalytic in its orientation. But uh, I then got the idea of tying it to the changes in the political economy, the underlying political economy, from sort of uh, the, the competitive, small-scale stuff of Emerson's day, early 19th century. Uh, and the major figure I was going to write about was Wallace Stevens, who worked for an hmm. insurance company yeah. in Hartford, Connecticut. So he's you know in high finance and a very different uh, kind of a, 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 um, economy from, from Emerson's uh, small-scale yeah. competitive capitalism. Uh, and I was going to take uh, Stephen's role in finance seriously as part of what informed his aesthetic and his, his, his poetry and his view of life. Uh, and uh, so I, I started reading um, political, more political economy. I read Baron and Sweezy's Monopoly Capital, uh, which I really was very influential on me. I, uh, I and, and in that book, they said the business press is really great. You should read the. If you're a Marxist, you should read the business press. Yeah. And uh, so I started reading Business uh, Business Week in particular, which I still subscribe to. Still has the same uh, form of address that I had uh, <laughs> forty years ago. Uh, and um, also Wall Street Journal. I started reading the Wall Street Journal, then the Financial Times. And I thought, hmm, you know, actually, and I was one day I was reading Rock and Roll Confidential, which was uh, Dave Marsh's uh, newsletter on rock and roll, mostly rock and roll, but also you know uh, other forms of uh, popular music as well. And it was just an eight-page newsletter, and I thought, hmm, I could do one of these things um, yeah. on economics. I think I could do economics and finance. And uh, so I just got the idea, bought a Macintosh, one of the early Macintoshes, 1986, and uh, decided, I'm going to start this newsletter. And as it turned out, I didn't really know what I was doing. Uh, but <laughs> I, you know, as the development economists say, I learned by doing. Uh, uh -huh. and, uh, just the first 20 issues or so were kind of embarrassing and amateurish. But since there weren't 
many people like me. I got some attention. I got some subscribers. Not a vast number, but some. Uh, and um, Verso asked me to do a book on Wall Street, uh, which I signed a contract for in 1989. And once I signed the contract, I said, oh, my God, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm in way over my head. What, what have I done? <laughs> um, so it took me about six years to write the book because I really, like almost a uh, you know, self-directed graduate education yeah. uh, in reading economics and finance. I never could quite get the advanced math, but you know, I read an awful lot of the you know, mainstream stuff uh, yeah. and the Marxist and the Keynesian stuff. And you know, I spent six years working on it. Um, that's when I really felt like I started understanding what this stuff was all about. But it, <laughs> it took yeah. me about 10 years of, uh, of, of, you know, growing up in public with my pants down, as Lou Reed once said. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, and so that book, that book, Wall Street, How It Works and For Whom, it came out in like 96, right? Like, so 10 yeah, years after. Yeah, 96 yeah. was the hardcover, and then I updated it slightly for the paperback, 97. Cool. Yeah, I mean, part of what I wanted to like set up there is, you know, by the time you get after, to after the new economy, you've really been watching markets and technology and all this stuff for yeah for almost 20 years at that point when the book comes out right i mean professionally yeah i mean actually i, I didn't mention my first job out of college was as a uh just a, a secretary basically for the chairman of a small brokerage firm um, mm -hmm. the firm went bust and i only lasted there six months because the firm went under um but he was really ahead of his time he had been a, a physicist at bell labs and decided he was going to take all that math that he learned as a physicist and apply it to the financial markets. So they just started trading listed options uh, when I got this job. And mm -hmm. so he was trying to develop options pricing models and sell them uh, mm -hmm. to portfolio managers. And nobody knew what he was talking about. He was really way ahead of his time. Hmm. He eventually drank himself to death, alas. He was a really interesting guy, though. Um, thoughtful, kept a he had a Baudelaire edition in his, his desk. Whoa, okay. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I don't know, he's not, not your standard Wall Street dude. Um, yeah. But, you know, as, after I left that job, I was like, I was kind of bitten. I, I, I was always fascinated by um, uh, Wall Street and the stock market. I don't know why. My uncle, who lived with us part of my time growing up, subscribed, got Barron's, and I used to read okay. Barron's all the time. Uh, Alan Abelson's column in Barron's in particular. Alan... Well, I later got to be kind of friendly with, uh, who gave me a nice blurb. Uh, he was, he, you know, he's deeply immersed in Wall Street, you know, editing this weekly magazine for Wall Street. But on the other hand, he was pretty contemptuous of a lot of the people involved. He thought they were kind of short-sighted and stupid and yeah. greedy. And uh, so he, he was always had this mocking tone about, uh, and he's a very good writer. And so he had this mocking tone. And I was like, that kind of shaped my, my view of things. But I always was really, really interested in this world of Wall Street and had this love-hate relationship with it, which is analogous to my fascination with and love-hate relationship with the ruling class more broadly. Hmm. You know, hmm. I was this suburban kid from a completely undistinguished suburb in New Jersey. <laughs> I went to a was it Teaneck, New Jersey? Is that what I read? <laughs> no, that's where I was born. Oh, okay. I grew up in a, in a place called Westwood, which is only known oh, okay. uh, for James Gandolfini was also born there. Okay, okay. Uh, and Eugene O'Neill's widow died there. I think those are the only significant things that ever happened in Westwood, New Jersey. <laughs> uh, but I, um, uh, where was I going with that? Well, um, just like that, your contempt for the ruling class, like or, or tension oh, yeah. around so, the ruling so class. So I, you know, I landed at Yale as an undergraduate. Uh, uh -huh. and, and I said, who are these people? You know, yeah. they got their names on buildings or their ancestors. Portraits are on the wall. I didn't really have, and a lot of them went to fancy private schools. Yeah. They, they, they studied Greek in, 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 in high school. I said, my God, you know, who are these people? Yeah. So I, that's developed this uh, love-hate relationship with them as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, money and social power and all that sort of thing have been my um, abiding um Topics I've studied now for like forty years, uh, and uh, yeah. uh, you know, I, I be, began uh, the, the intro to Wall Street by saying that a psychoanalyst would have a field day with the fact that I spent so much time studying finance without making lots of money. <laughs> um, and uh, I saw a shrink for a while who actually thought that was a, it was a neurotic symptom that I was knew all this but didn't use it to make a lot of money. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, like too many uh, of us, I'm afraid. Yeah, I, I just, I just spent, uh, you know, I've spent like several decades now um, studying these people who um, kind of run the world. Um, but uh, you know, I'm 
my uh, current obsession is how what a rotten social formation they are. They can't even function as a proper ruling class anymore. It's really sad in that way, for sure. Yeah, I hear you. Um, so what? What? For what? I heard earlier. You, you, your. After the new economy was slightly delayed because you had your your personal life was falling apart there for a minute. And but, what, did you start writing it in two thousand? Like, what did you conceive of the book? Like, at, in that early moment when like the dot com bust was happening, or was it even earlier than that? It was a little earlier, late nineties, like ninety eight, okay. ninety nine, probably. I can't remember what exactly the trajectory was. Yeah. Um, but the Nasdaq was uh, peaking in the spring of of two thousand, just as my yeah. first marriage was falling apart. So all this stuff was happening. <laughs> it's like, oh my god, this everything I foretold is coming true now. Yeah. And I I really couldn't write about it. I was in no shape to write about anything. So I remember I did manage to write one piece about the uh, the. Time Warner AOL merger, I think it was. This is okay. insane. This is not going to work out. Yeah, and of course it didn't. But uh, uh, that that. But I was mostly um, out of commission for like sure, as that moment was coming to fruition, or yeah. whatever the opposite of fruition is. Right. Yeah. One of the great ironies of that moment is that the Clinton administration decides to hold like uh a conference on the new economy it's like the co- the title of the conference is something like the new economy and it's like i can't remember they hold they hold it literally like a month after the uh the you know the stock market starts to crater and so it's just like you know it's there's these beautiful moments in the story yeah he was the perfect president for that moment in a lot of ways too because he's just he's kind of dreamy and weird um yeah you know, aside from all the, you know, this sort of centrist pro-business Democrat stuff, he had these moments where he'd get lost in fantasies about, like, there's one speech he gave about a rich, soft wanting. We all need, we all want a rich, soft wanting. I was like, what is this guy talking about? But <laughs> I mean, that that kind of, and this is one of the striking about the contrast between him and Trump. Mm. Not, um both snake oil salesmen in, in in different sorts of ways, but you know, Clinton at least you know this stuff about the bridge to the twenty first century. Don't stop thinking about tomorrow. There was a classic American uh, you know optimistic view of the future there. Yeah, and now we have you know Trump who is just nothing but nostalgic, but with a really sour um, yeah. flavor to it. Uh, it's just the, 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 you know, yes. One 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 longs for something more hopeful than uh, than, than the current uh, political environment. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, as fraudulent as it was, I was just looking at that old uh, um, uh, Edmund Wilson quote, which he uh, wrote just after the stock market crash in 1929, yeah. and he said, "One couldn't help but be exuberant at the collapse of that stupid, gigantic fraud." And you know, I felt that way in 2000. I felt that way last year as all that, you know, the meme stocks and all that nonsense yeah. and crypto, all that stuff was falling apart. Uh, not completely yet, alas, but you know, that, that whole stupid, gigantic fraud. Um, yeah. <laughs> it is a recurring feature of American life. Yeah. Yeah, man. I, I was just uh, reading uh, an essay. So there's this. Uh, essay by Robert Brenner and Dylan Riley that got everyone inflamed. It was it was in the New Left Review, and it was like it's called Seven Theses on Political Capitalism or something, and got leftists all worked up. But one of the points in the it's pretty bleak is just like in a sense we it looks like a post growth economy in a lot of ways, and we're dealing with like post growth political parties is part of their argument. And I think it, it might partly account for that the kind of grimness that you see in Trump and other folks. Yeah, I haven't, I have to admit, I haven't read those, uh, those articles yet. I know people are getting very excited about them and I feel like I should read them or should have read them already, but I haven't. Uh, but this issue around post-growth, that's, that gets very complicated. Um, yeah. All the degrowthers. Uh, oh, I wasn't going that way. <laughs> I know. But yeah, I, hear you. Yeah. Just, uh, I don't know. I think it's as, as economists say, misspecified. Um, yeah, I hear but you. But anyway, I, I don't. That, that's a whole other topic. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's um, the system has run out of gas. Yeah. You know, I, I once saw George Soros at the Council of Foreign Relations, and he was describing America as having shot its what, and he stopped himself before he finished his thought. <laughs> And everybody yeah. has the foreign relations starts laughing. But America does feel like it has shot as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I want to give listeners, a, you know, like some sense of how your your book moves. 
So, you know, the first chapter is about novelty and the sense of newness. And you already kind of touched on this. I mean, you certainly it's about the Internet, but it's a lot about a lot of the other stuff, too. And you talk about people like futurist George Gilder and Greenspan and Kevin Kelly and Manuel Castells and all these people who kind of become prophets for the new economy. So, I mean, uh, you're more familiar with this text than I am now. Yeah, no, it's okay. <laughs> I, I do, I do, revi- I have revisited it a number of times, but I just wonder, you know, the question, my question for you is like, in, you know, if we look back on the 90s, like, how do we account for that, that sense of aliveness that you've brought up a couple times? Like, what do you think created that? Do you think it was just like, it was a moment of expansion after lots of decades of contraction, or what was up? Well, you know, the technology was new. The internet was yeah. becoming a, a, a mass phenomenon, having been a pretty you know, connoisseur phenomenon earlier. Uh, and computers are getting more powerful and cheaper, and you could start, you could do things that you couldn't do before. So there was a real being determines consciousness kind of moment mm-hmm. uh, that was going on then. Uh, when I wrote the book, uh, the the first version of it, the hardcover version, I was very skeptical about all the claims about a productivity acceleration. Yeah, you are in the book. Yep. And then uh, when the paperback came out, I wrote a uh, a long intro uh, hmm. in which I s- sort of changed my mind. And reading Robert Gordon's uh, work on yeah. productivity acceleration, I did change my mind to some degree. Um, but it turned out my skepticism was warranted. Um, you know, the productivity acceleration lasted. I don't know, maybe five years and yeah. then disappeared. And um, now we're just doing really badly in that department. So it's yeah. really strange to have that um, that boom came along with a real large rise in capital spending, heavy investment in technological equipment mostly. Yeah. Uh, capital, real increase in ICT capital spending. Uh, and we haven't seen anything like that in this cycle. Um, there just hasn't been that kind of investment. Um, and the innovation is much less impressive. You know, yeah. now it's just like iterations on um, things that are pretty familiar. You know, we have mm-hmm. a faster iPhone, but you know, the iPhone is what ten, twelve years old. Uh, there's nothing, nothing like that. Uh, I love my new M1 Macintosh. It's really, really fast, but uh, it's not all that profoundly different from the Macintosh I had ten years ago. Yeah. Um, so uh, the the break was, you know, greater than. I think the real technical advances were greater then. Um, and I don't know, maybe something in the, the age make of the makeup of the population. My cohort was, you know, just uh, reaching maturity. Oh, that's uh, interesting. Yeah. And um, we carried our, you know, 60s optimism into a different kind of world. Um, and I don't know, young people today are often rather gloomy about the future, yeah. uh, which kind of saddens me. I think you know, young people are supposed to be you know, optimistic about the future. They're supposed to be <laughs> an antidote to the sour, sourness of the aging, but uh, yeah. they're, not, they're not living up to their, uh, their role at this point. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think, I don't know whether it was that. Um, uh, it seemed like the end of the Cold War put capitalism in a very good mood. It lost its, its there any, any sense of rivalry. There's another way to do things. Capitalism enjoyed a prestige in those moments that... Uh, you know, I was talking earlier about the uh, the sign over Silicon that said "Welcome to Silicon Alley," right yeah. up the street. Forbes magazine had a, a big billboard that you know, like celebrating itself as a capitalist tool. Yeah, and you know they're, they're turning around all those old critical terms into uh, uh, um, reclaiming them. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so there was that moment that of intense capitalist triumph, of like. No, there's no other way to do things. We won, you lost. Uh, get in line uh, and celebrate. And uh, you know, I remember this is many years earlier, uh, but that movie. Uh, um, um, uh, 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 oh, now I'm forgetting it. Uh, in which uh, the running with the running dog shoes um, uh, about the boomers who given up on uh, their dreams and wanted to business. Okay. Uh, uh, oh, it's not Wall Street. Um... No, it's. Oh, yeah, there's this one scene where like this woman who'd been a uh, a public defender went to work as a real estate lawyer and somebody was giving her a hard time for it. She said, well, at least you're not rapists. You know, that, uh, <laughs> oh, that's how they, they <laughs> that, that, that's, that's how we were processing things. <laughs> so there was, a, you know, there's yeah. a transformation of the baby boomer consciousness. Yeah, so, and you know, and, and Robert Tucker has that great book about the uh, 
the transformation of uh, the whole earth catalog and that, that whole sensibility, the hippie sensibility into the Silicon Valley philosophy. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, you know, the individualistic libertarianism, which makes one look differently uh, now at uh, hippie culture in retrospect. There was a lot, mm -hmm. you know, libertarian individualism to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. There was a lot of other things too, but you know, it, it, the, uh, the ease with which that transition happened makes you wonder what hippiedom was all about. Yeah, but in totally. any case, you know, mm -hmm. th that there was that celebration of, of, of capitalism. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Ken Kirsten, uh, who had been uh, kind of a radical journalist when he was an undergraduate at the University of Chicago, then was doing this magazine Green, uh, where mutual funds became cool. Um, hmm. And yeah, it was just... This was Gen X moving in and thinking that there's something really cool about mutual funds and self-reliance. Hmm. Uh, this was part of the sensibility that part, with the younger people at Wired um, um, were part of this, this, this cohort. Yeah. Um, so you had, you know, the older ones who were making the transition from hippiedom to, um, uh, to techdom. But then you had the younger people who would not known anything but capitalist triumphalism and they're going to make the best of it. Yeah, uh, and now you know all these years later, uh, capitalism doesn't look so triumphant. There's an awful lot of alienation from the system. People are not uh, making any money. It's not a, not a very prosperous time. And yeah. that's one thing. Another thing about the late '90s, there where there was actually money getting around. You know, mm -hmm, I was mm -hmm. talking earlier. I was talking earlier about you know I'd walk around Lower East Side and see all these kids spending lots of money, but they had it. Yeah. Um, and you just don't see that now. Um, mm -hmm. There's just not that that boom was somewhat more democratic, and I use mm -hmm. that word advisedly. But it was somewhat more democratic than, than the recent one was, where yeah. money has been kept more, uh, much more closely held. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of my comrades in uh, New York City DSA are tech workers, you know, and um, they are the mo modern working class in a lot of ways. But they're also people who, in an earlier time, would have uh, enjoyed professional jobs with high salaries uh, and uh, be rising up the corporate ladder and all those sorts of things. And now that that's just not happening, um, mm -hmm. that, that kind of upward mobility eh, with with some exceptions, but it's, it's not what it used to be. And so yeah. they just, uh, you know, this theory by uh, Peter Turchin, um, who has a book uh, uh, which came out a little while ago, um, and uh, his uh, one of his uh, arguments is that we are suffering from overproduction of elites, that all these people who went to school and got fancy degrees uh, and thought they were going to have a nice life in the professional managerial class are finding not having it. And uh, that, um, that, in combination with downward mobility in the rest of the population, leads to a great deal of uh, potential for a social explosion. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that, yeah, yeah. you know, it's just such a different labor market and such a different material environment from what mm -hmm. it was in the late 90s. Yeah. One of the ways I've started thinking about the new economy, and it, in part, I was like following up on some thoughts in your book. Um, you had this great section in the book that I found a couple, refound a couple of years ago and then became really important to me where you were looking at Robert Reich. So this is a secretary of labor under Clinton and was also kind of writing a lot of pop books on, you know, like the knowledge economy or something like that at, at, at the time. And um, you were looking at like how he was very focused on new economy jobs. I, I found these especially focusing on technicians as a kind of class of workers. But he's talking about all kinds of techie jobs, right? Oh yeah, like wasn't it a vending machine repairman? Wasn't that one of his examples? Yeah, yeah, he loved that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's using a <laughs> printed circuit board, and you know, like, like not the old mechanical vending machines. Like, yeah. Well, Jesus, you know, all the guy does <laughs> is pull out the old board and put in the new one. It's not like he's wiring yeah. it himself. You know. But part of what you show is that he he didn't even even you know he was Secretary of Labor. He's not reading the publications of the Bureau of Labor Statistics because what the BLS was showing at that time when he's the Labor Secretary. They were already projecting the, you know, the fastest jobs growing in America were going to be very low wage service jobs like uh, home health care aides, for instance. And and part of what I've started to feel is that like what a lot of these guys, the new economy thinkers and new economy thinkers are like a bunch of economists too, not just Reich and, and not just Greenspan, but a bunch of folks is in the Clinton White House. It was like they're kind of projecting forward from this spurt of expansion, right? As if this was like the new economy is going to be like this 
long period of expansion and abundance. And they they project it way forward when it turned out to be a couple years. Does that does that sound right? Is just like making false inferences or something? Yeah, well, there's certainly a lot of that, uh, and you know, the BLS is making similar projections today. Uh, yeah, if you look at their exactly. projections for what's going to be required over the next decade, it's a lot of um, I can't remember the exact numbers, but maybe two thirds of the jobs don't even require a college degree, maybe yeah. an associate's degree, but nothing higher, uh, and some short on the job training. Uh, and, you know, there will be a minority of nice, fancy jobs. And that was the same thing that was being projected in, in the late 90s, yeah. uh, which is the way things worked out. You know, about, uh, say, roughly you know, the, the middle has been emptying out. Uh, there's just mm -hmm. not a whole lot of good jobs in the middle anymore the way there used to be. And maybe, you know, one third of that has gone upwards, but two thirds have gone downwards. Mm -hmm. uh, and something similar still is happening. Uh, last few years, we've seen some improvement uh, in the fortunes for the low wage labor market. Um, with tight, yes, right, with low unemployment rates, tight labor markets. Uh, yeah, but, but unfortunately, some of those gains have been eaten up by inflation, so they're not even really um, durable gains. But that aside, um, I think also uh, a lot of people, academics, professionals, journalists saw what was happening uh, in their own jobs and uh, that of their friends. And the late 90s is a great time to be a journalist. There was a lot of money in the field, um, a lot mm -hmm. of startup publications. It was a days when uh, Condé Nast, um, I knew some people who worked for uh, Vanity Fair, uh, and had a, a neighbor uh, on the Upper West Side who uh, uh, was their art critic for a while. And they would fly him and his wife to a gallery opening in Paris. Hmm. Uh, Nothing spectacular. It's not like, you know, a major museum retrospective exhibit. No, just a gallery opening in Paris. Uh, <laughs> and and the two of them would go first class. And this was life at Condé Nast, writing for Vanity Fair in those days. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, they thought, wow, everybody's like living like, everybody's living <laughs> large now. And then, you know, it's changing the way uh, academics did research, having so much information online, uh, you know. It's, and I, you know, I still feel this as a journalist. It's so much easier to do research now than it was 30 yeah. years ago. You know, and I could find things in, in three minutes that it would take a long trip to the library to find. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, there's a downside to that, but no, it's mostly an upside. But I think the people, um, some of the people who write and think about these things came to uh, just generalize their experience, that the whole world was going through this revolution and everybody's feeling really creative. But yeah. even at the time, I remember thinking, you know, well, there are far more truck drivers than there are computer programmers. Yeah, uh, totally. And, you know, in all <laughs> these celebrations, you never, uh, never hear that. And then if you talk about the, the, the world scale, you know, there's still then, probably a bit smaller proportion now, but then about half the world uh, were living in poor countries uh, as farmers, peasants. Yeah. You know, that was the... the the modal human experience was not that of an urban knowledge worker. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, certainly there have been much, there's been some urbanization over the last 20, 30 years. Uh, and, uh, you know, the formal labor force has expanded compared to what it was then. But still, you know, this is, this is just not representative of the way people live their lives. Um, but yeah. it, it, it just became easy to think so as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is um, kind of, you know, this is in some ways an impossible question, but I wonder, like, overall, like, what role the stock market plays in the new economy story? Because it's like, if you look at, like, t the um, use of the term, according to Google Ngram, at least, like, the, which tracks, you know, phrase and word use over time, in two th you know, like, in 2002 use of the phrase, the new economy basically falls off a cliff face, right? I mean, it's like between 2000, 2002, air is going out of the dot, the dot com bust is happening, air is going out of that bubble. And it seems like the term is very tied up with that because like productivity doesn't start falling for another couple years, right? It's like 2004 or something like that. It starts going down. Yeah. So it just seems like, was the new economy really like a stock market story or like it was really about markets more than anything? Oh, a lot of it was, yeah. I mean, it was a byproduct, but also fed it. You know, it became yeah. this, uh, I don't want to call it a virtuous circle, but it's something that fed in itself. Uh, yeah. And we saw that again, you know, in the recent uh, episode uh, that uh, 
the Fed pumping three or four trillion dollars in the economy, keeping interest rates at zero for a decade. Yeah. Uh, that just led to an immense amount of exuberance, irrational yeah. exuberance, as Greenspan famously put it. <laughs> um, but also, um, there's just so much money to, to, to play with. The Fed yeah. was just printing all this money and uh, the real economy was not doing so great. And uh, a lot of it just went into the financial markets and people in the markets who have, a, you know, an outsized influence on, on public discourse. Yeah. Uh, and people who own stocks also have an outsized influence on public discourse. Uh, They're having a great time. Everything is doing great for them. Um, yeah. And uh, the, the Trump economy wasn't that bad. The unemployment rate was pretty low. Um, wages were rising. Um, mm -hmm. More than they are under Biden, I have to admit. Uh, <laughs> and and then, uh, even more than under Obama as well. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, still, um, it was not a great time. Uh, it was not, uh, the, the working class was not, it was not rolling in money. Um, yeah. But the financial markets are doing great. And so um, it just, it's easy to say everything is going great. And then we had that moment of what, it was February, February, March, 2021, the meme stock moment. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, Everyone's uh, at home playing with apps with Robinhood or yeah, whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it's just a crazy moment. I actually yeah. got into the Daily Show to talk about it. Was, oh, really? I <laughs> missed that. Oh, bummer. <laughs> it, was a, it was a lot of fun. Uh, it's not my... It's, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I always figure when I get attention from mainstream um, uh, source, uh, outlets that whatever phenomenon... <laughs> Whatever phenomenon is being talked about is just about over. Uh, <laughs> oh, and man. So that's yeah. why I felt being on The Daily Show, this meme stock thing is just about over. Uh, yeah. And, you know, that was that was the peak in a lot. Also, what's her name? Kathy Wood, mm -hmm. uh, one of the, the, the uh, hero portfolio managers of that period, uh, her, her ARC fund. Yeah. Uh, um, peaked around then, too. Uh, yeah. I haven't looked at it lately, but it's, it's probably recovered some but it really mm -hmm. really took a dive but she was she and her her stocks were symbols of, of that period and it was just utterly insane the stuff that was going on about around meme stocks yeah uh, and totally i just like <laughs> like what it's the same feeling i had at the pseudo studios like what is going on here this cannot <laughs> last i know man uh yeah something you might mention it in your book but i was most recently reminded of it by uh nelson labor historian nelson lichtenstein has a book coming out on the clinton administration this fall and uh i've read it a couple times and uh and uh i didn't realize that or i hadn't remembered at least that uh, Fed rates played a role in the dot-com buildup, too, just as we've seen in the 2010s. Maybe a smaller one, because we basically had ZERP for a long time in the 2010s, but I just hadn't put the two and two. I mean, it seems like Fed policy is actually playing a role in these recurrent asset bubbles at this point. Oh, it, definitely. Uh, and Greenspan was a real cheerleader for the new economy. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, he would I used to make fun of him in my newsletter, because um, he would say the most preposterous things. I, he, he's like, Everything is getting so small and light. You know, he's trying to, like, <laughs> the weight of the economy, just the physical weight of the economy was so much lighter than it used to be. He'd like get all gee whizzy about this sort of stuff. And, you know, because of micro, because we're making chips and stuff. Is that yeah, the idea? Yeah, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Uh, it was, there was this outbreak of belief in, but we, were post-material somehow. Yeah, yeah. Kevin Kelly says this explicitly in that book you mentioned. Yeah, and then uh, Charles Ledbetter, um, who was had been the industry economist for uh, uh, industry correspondent for the Financial Times, uh, then discovered the new economy and wrote this book called Lighter Than Air. I think it was called. Okay. He later became um, uh, um, the uh, the editor for Bridget Jones' Diary. So we, uh, we also. <laughs> I mean, yeah, and you also have Jeremy Rifkin during that period, like the world without oh, work yeah. and all that. Yeah, yeah. Stanley Aronowitz, the end of work. Yeah. Think all this. Like, We've heard that again this time, again, in like more than once, right? Yeah, now yeah. it's AI. Like, you know, but it's the, been AI the, twice because there was a second machine age moment in like 2014 to 2015. Now we're hearing it with generative AI. It's just like the yeah. script just plays out again and again. Yeah, it really feels like another, like AI feels like another bubble. There was a headline in the Financial yeah. Times that effect the other day. And I was like, yeah, I think we may be there. Um, uh, but going back to Greenspan, he was such a cheerleader for this stuff. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he, at some point, really believed in the productivity revolution. 
And so he yeah. said, because of this revolution in productivity, we can maintain lower rates of interest, uh, higher levels of economic growth without uh, worrying about inflation. Okay. Tight, tighter labor markets. Uh, and uh, hmm. that's where he would famously talked about the conundrum. People would make fun of him a little bit for this conundrum of tight labor markets, but with no wage increases. And okay. he, he explicitly said also that working class was scared. Um, they were still afraid of layoffs uh-huh. and restructurings, which had been so uh, uh, prominent in the 80s and early 90s yeah. uh, that it had really scarred the uh, the sensibilities of the working class. Hmm. That they were just terrified that they were going to lose their jobs or their skills would become obsolete or their firms were going to move away. Or, you know, just some bad things befall them. Yeah. So they'd never ask for a raise. Uh, they'd, they'd do whatever the boss said. And Greenspan is very explicit about celebrating that. Wow, but you know his belief in this productivity revolution uh, was what enabled him to keep interest rates very, very low for a long period of time. That allowed the dot com bubble to blow up, <laughs> not in the sense of exploding, but expanding. And yeah, yeah. Blew up in the sense of exploding uh, <laughs> once they started raising rates. Um, yeah, but yeah, it was a similar thing. Um, so we've, you know, a lot of people's uh, understanding of Federal Reserve and its policies and its functions were shaped by the Volcker years uh, mm -hmm. and William Greider's famous book on the Volcker years, yeah, uh, yeah. Secrets of the Temple. Uh, but, you know, Volcker left in 87. And that period of really tight money, uh, 1979 to 82, but, you know, it stayed pretty tight from 82 until Volcker left. And then, you know, when Greenspan came, happy days were here again. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know he never really deliberately created a recession. He ra started raising interest rates soon after uh, taking over, but then we had the 1987 stock market crash, uh, and Greenspan said, "Oh no, we can't have that." And so they issued a press release right after the financial the the, the 87 crash and said, "The Federal Reserve, in accordance with its uh, its duties, will make sure that things don't go all to hell." Hmm. Uh, in politer terms. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, that was really the beginning of the modern bailout culture. That, yeah. So finance came to think that it could just do anything and get away with it. There's a story of uh, Sonny Barger, who was the number two guy in the Hells Angels for many years. Mm -hmm. uh, and he had just gotten accidents after accident. And then finally, he had a really bad one. Uh, was a, spent some time in a coma, and then he woke up, and the nurse said, I hope you learn your lesson, Mr. Barger. And he said, yes, I did. And she said, what's that? He said, I can do anything and survive. <laughs> oh, man. But that's, yeah. where, that's what the, the lesson that finance learned from, from the Greenspan yeah. years. And you saw just one after another of these bailouts. Yeah. Uh, the late 90s, we had the, uh, the Asian financial crisis, Russia financial crisis. Um, uh, early 2000s, you know, we had the, the dot-com bust. Mm -hmm. um, and then we had, you know, after the uh, 2008. 2008 crisis, we yeah. had just, you know, the Fed pumping, pumping, pumping and keeping rates at zero. Yeah. And, you know, that doesn't mean that austerity is great, but you know, the, 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 the financier class has not taken a hit of any magnitude. Uh, I don't know, since 1929, 32, you know, mm -hmm. like they've just been bailed out serially. Um, now, um, yeah. and so their, you know, their their share of wealth and income just keeps rising, uh, and you know it, it's it's flat over periods of time, but it hasn't gone down ever, you know, in, in, yeah, <laughs> uh, since uh, the early nineteen seventies. Yeah. So part of what I wanted to do, and you know, kind of making some final moves in our discussion, is kind of connecting it to the last decade, your book, and we've already been doing that some, but I want to do it even deeper, and I feel like you kind of just set it up. I my the way I tell the story or the way I've been thinking about the story is when the Fed comes in after 2008, they put interest rates to zero. They're pumping in lots of cash. One of the things that comes out of that is by 2012, 2013, we're starting to see bubbly activity around a lot of different technologies, right? There's like social media, there's Uber and Lyft and all those gig, gig economy, sharing economy firms. Uh, there's self-driving cars and drones. 
you know, we have we've had two waves of AI hype in the last decade, uh, including those ones in 2014, 2015 and all that blockchain, Web3 and the metaverse. So it just keeps web, going web on, three. right? <laughs> web3 is one of the most comical ones in this whole series. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I love my feeling about web3 was it, it was really like a last breath, a gasp of like that that moment, but then the generative AI thing happened, so uh new air got kicked in there. But I, when did it do you remember when it started feeling like kind of like another asset bubble like 2000 like the like the 90s to you? Well, I, yeah. When did I wrote? I wrote a couple of pieces for the Nation on this. I remember I wrote, I wrote one about the unicorn moment. <clears throat> I can't remember when that was. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I wrote a piece about Bitcoin. I think that was two thousand fourteen. Uh huh. And <clears throat> at that point, I thought Bitcoin. This stuff is insane. Yeah. <laughs> like, how's this going to last? You know. Here we are, ten years later, and it's you know, it's a little staggering, but it's still yeah. it's still going. Mm -hmm. Weird sell-off in Bitcoin last week, but I don't know what that was all about. But in any yeah. case, it's something which makes no sense at all. I, I don't really understand why it exists or what problem it's meant to solve. Yeah. But you know, there are an awful lot of passionate believers still uh, who are. It's always hard to separate the passionate believers from the con men, too. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, totally. The history, of, the history of capitalism is. Um, was was it? Uh, Marx has a phrase something about how. Uh, the apostles of credit always have this nicely mixed uh, character of swindler and um, prophet. Huh. Uh, and, you know, that's just been a constant. Yeah. Swindle, <laughs> swindler and prophet, sometimes they're different people, sometimes they're the same person. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, um, yeah, I guess it's been about almost 10 years that I've had this sensation of uh, deja vu all yeah. over again. You know, it's... Uh, but it got crazier. You know, Bitcoin, when I wrote that, was, well, I don't know, who knows, what was it, 2014, $1,000? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, now it's 20-something. Like, it's hard to keep up with whatever Bitcoin yeah. is. But, you know, twenty or $30,000. And, you know, then there's what, thousands of other um, cryptocurrencies. Um, mm -hmm. And it's managed, the whole scene has managed to survive these collapses and the revelations of fraud and, you know, Sam Bankman freed going to the, uh, the Brooklyn house of detention. Um, it's mm -hmm. just, um, it's surprising it's managed to survive that, but it has. Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, the stock market is somewhat off its highs, but it's still pretty richly valued. Um, yeah. Well, I wanted uh, to ask you about that too. I mean, like there, a lot of the air went out of the bubble last year. I mean, like, you know, Stupid things like metaverse real estate really took a hit. Twenty twenty two, right? <laughs> uh, and yeah, I remember three. reading that stuff. Like, you know, <laughs> people actually talking about real estate development in the metaverse. Yeah, like, yeah. what? Uh, good lord! Yeah, but you know, the stock market's come back a lot in twenty twenty three. So, I mean, how have you been thinking about that as someone who follows this pretty closely? Well, you know. Uh, some of my left-wing friends are going to criticize me for this, but you know, it makes me think the Fed isn't being tight enough when I see stuff like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, this is a real serious problem that uh, we have very crude tools for managing the economy, and one of them is monetary policy, interest rates, and the quantity of money. Uh, and um, over the last, I don't know, a couple of decades, it's become. Um, uh, it's as if the um, prosperity of the real economy is a byproduct of, of the financial markets. So um, we allow these insane bubbles to develop, mm -hmm. immense wastes of capital and human intelligence and human, human resources. Yep. Uh, this, this recent um, last two, three years, we had a very substantial housing boom or in prices, but there was very little new construction. Uh, and so, unlike the housing bubble of you know, the early to mid two thousands, when there was mm -hmm. still a lot of construction, which is one of the things that brought that one to an end, uh, as, as prices rose, supply increased, and therefore you know, prices mm -hmm. came down. Uh, but we haven't seen that this time very much. Um, the, this mm -hmm. current uh, housing bubble has been mostly people in the upper brackets, people with very high credit scores, uh, unlike the one of the earlier. 15, 20 years ago, which was uh, driven by people of low credit scores. 
And God knows people with low credit score needs housing, but they don't need easy loans that they can't afford. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, this, this, this decades now of super easy money and indulgence from the Federal Reserve and other central banks around the world too, mm-hmm. uh, has just produced this incredibly distorted system where financial markets get crazy and, um, you know, you don't want to see the unemployment rate go up and, um, what, yeah. what, uh, bargaining power workers have gained because of low unemployment rates. You don't want to see that evaporate. But on the other hand, we got to do something about these insane financial markets and this system of, of, of feeling entitled to a bailout every time something goes wrong. So we, we saw the Silicon Valley bank failure of, God, when was that? Early this year. It sort of yeah. seems like ancient history. And then a couple of crypto banks failed at the same time. Uh, and it was uh, in important part because the Fed had tightened and uh, yeah. the, all the bonds that these guys had loaded up on um, lost value. And that meant that the banks were insolvent. Um, and the Fed paused its tightening some. Um, but this underlying problem didn't go away. There's yeah. still a lot of um, risky stuff in bank balance sheets. We could see another round of this. Um, so it, it, I think the only way to really deal with this is by regulating, finan- regulating finance. Yeah. And, but also you know, just relying on super tight um, labor markets in order to provide wage increases and some degree of job security. It's, it's, it's got a problem. You know, we should, yeah. you know, have, Different regulation of the labor market, better minimum wages, stronger unions, a, a civilized welfare state, um, things that have some at least potential durability, whereas just relying on low unemployment rate to do all the work is, is a kind of neoliberal approach to things. It was what Bill Clinton believed, you know. Um, yeah. And uh, I just it, it's it's we've got this economic model now, now though, where it, it's just all dependent on um, indulgence uh, from the monetary authority and. Uh, yeah, and little else. Uh, we had that great moment, or a couple of great moments during the pandemic, which is don't get me wrong, a horrible thing. Yeah. But we did have, for a moment, a, a semi-generous welfare state, and it made an enormous difference for an awful lot Huge. of people. Huge, yeah. Uh, and if only we could have made that permanent. If we could have that permanent child allowance. If we could have, you know, uh, a much more generous unemployment system. Um, uh, just uh, people accumulated. A, a, a high degree of a high amount of savings uh, and have been able to, they've been living on that to some degree for the last year or two. That's now seems to be all gone or very close. Yeah. To Auto loan uh, repayment starts starting to fall. I mean, there's, there's yeah. starting to be problems showing up. It looks like. And there was also the, the long student loan moratorium, which is yep. an end. Yeah. Uh, and so um, that, that was a, that was a great thing. We could have, we could have done with a lot more of that, um, but it shows it shows what a good policy can do, and uh, it can do more than just relying solely on a three and a half percent unemployment rate to do all the work of yeah. putting a floor under the living standards of the working class. Yeah. And you know, then there's the whole critique that work sucks anyway. So what do you want to do about that? <laughs> Well, man, uh, Doug, thank you so much for taking the time and talking to me today. Where, where can people find you? I mean, you got your you got your radio show and podcast um, uh, behind the news, and you know what else? Where can people look for you? Um, I write for Jacobin now and then. I'm doing for something for them right now on uh, the, on Bidenomics, whatever that is. Okay. Oh, dude. <laughs> oh my God, we could do a whole hour on that. I can't wait to hear your uh, take on Bidenomics. And then. Um... <laughs> No, I, I do write things from my blog now and then, which is lbo-news.com. Uh, pretty much everything I do is is reported on there, and all my radio shows are listed on there. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, – I, I should write more frequently than I do, but you know, writing is hard work. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, Doug, <laughs> thanks so much, man. This has been great. All right. Thank you. you enjoyed this episode of our podcast you can reach us with questions comments and suggestions at leevinsel at gmail.com or by following me on twitter at sts underscore news or on youtube at people's things our podcast is distributed by the new books network the leading platform for academic podcasts so that you can find us wherever you get 
your podcasts. Peoples and Things, like most things in this world, depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy Juliana Castro for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Joe Fort is the producer for the podcast, and Mandy Lamb is the production assistant. This podcast and other Peoples and Things programming are produced in affiliation with Virginia Tech Publishing and supported by the Center for Humanities and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. For the entire Peoples and Things team, I am Lee Vinsel. And most importantly, I want to thank you for listening. Thanks.